Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. Hello, hello. We've got two great interviews for you today. Giordano from The Juice Media and also Rod Quantock. But before we do that, I just want to acknowledge I'm on Gadigal land in the Yora Nation. And I'm on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. All right, let's kick it off with the climate news. Despite global warming, a rational fear is adding a little more hot air with long-form discussions with climate leaders. Good and bad. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The heat waves and drought. Greatest. Mass extinction. Moral. We're facing a man-made disaster. Podcast. They're the climate criminals. Of our generation. All of this with the global warming and the, that, and a lot of it's a hoax. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Goompog, for short. Now, Lynn, before we get straight into the climate news, I want to let everybody know that we are doing live shows in Newcastle and Vega for a rational fear. We're also going to Melbourne, but a little bit later on. Uh, we are performing June 5 in Newcastle, where we'll have James Pender from Sammy J, Kirsten Drysdale from Reputation Rehab and Hungry Beast, Lewis Hobber, uh, also from Triple J. Uh, it's basically people who used to be on Hungry Beast. It's going to be a <laughs> Hungry Beast mini reunion. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, and also James Pender's from the Ronnie John's Half Hour an old TV show that I used to do, do on Channel 10. Also, we've got Georgina Woods, who is from Lock the Gate, and DJ Dillabolical from News Fighters. It's going to be fast, funny. It's going to be like Q&A on crack. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, the, the Upper Hunter. Uh, so if you are in Newcastle and you want to come along, please do. It's going to be great. We've already Tickets have already started to sell. I think we've sold you know, 20 or 30 tickets already. And Amazing. Yeah, and we're trying to work out also a workshop that you can be at, Lynn, where we do some kind of digital meme workshop where we can teach people how to make memes on the internet. 
It's going to be a hoot. It's going to be this funny thing where we're meeting offline, in real life, in person to do things on the internet. I think this is how all great digital activism starts, is actually not on the internet. Um, So get excited and get tickets. So, yeah, uh, do follow Irrational Fear on all the social medias and we'll we'll let you know when that workshop's going to be. But June 5 at the Newcastle Civic Theatre, get your tickets. Details are in the show notes. All right, huge week in climate news this week. We could talk a bit about Bravis uh, losing their water license to to create the Galilee coal mine, which is pretty funny. You know, it's very it's good comedy to see these guys p- p- going ahead creating a coal mine. Um, but we won't because something has wiped that off the slate. And we are very lucky to be joined by Antonio Yuhas, fellow Bertha fellow, to talk to us through some of the biggest news happening in climate probably ever. Antonia, thanks for joining us. We just woke up to this excellent news, but tell us more. Has this been a good, bad, what sort of wake has the fossil fuel industry been having? No, I'd say it's going to really, really uh, knock their heads together, run over them with a tractor, drag them behind the the wheel of the car kind of, kind of, kind of weak. Dragged them behind the wheel of an electric car, probably a new F-150 <laughs> Lightning, maybe. No, I think they're going to, I think it's like drag them behind a car that's puffing out a whole lot of polluting exhaust <laughs> that make them suck it in for making the rest of us do it and hold them accountable for it kind of week. <laughs> All right. And now we've had a couple of huge rulings by shareholders and by court. Let's walk us through just quickly. What First of all, let's start off with Shell in the Netherlands. Uh, Shell is being forced to slash its pollution by a Dutch court. It's a massive ruling. So the court upheld that companies have a requirement under the Paris Climate Accord to essentially meet the standards of the Paris Climate Accord and that it runs contrary to the guaranteed human rights, guaranteed to European uh, citizens for Shell to destroy the climate. And so Shell must change its practices so that it doesn't destroy the climate. And the ruling ordered the company to nearly have, so by 40% cut, its emissions across its entire supply chain, its entire chain, production chain, within less than 10 years. So by 2030, a 45% cut in emissions from counting not only its own um, production and exploration and refining and transporting of oil and natural gas, but also what its suppliers contribute to emissions and what its consumers contribute to emissions. Wow. So we're talking scope one, scope two, scope three, the whole thing. Indeed. Wow, that's such a cool thing. Like it's so incredible that this this fossil fuel giant is kind of being pulled together like this by a regulatory body. And I guess um, the Netherlands is so progressive in, in places, like in kind of areas like this. Or like how do they get to this point of kind of forcing Shell to do this? They're saying that in signing the Paris Climate Accord, nations have created, essentially, have agreed on a moral norm. And that moral norm is that the world uh, cannot be warmed beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that not only are governments accountable to that norm, but with this ruling, so too are companies. So that there isn't an, there isn't an international body that exists to regulate multinational corporations. And that's what the, what the court is also saying is, it is the obligation of the company to adhere to the norms of its 
home government Mm. and the agreements that that government has signed, including the Paris Climate Accord and including human rights accords under the European Union for the case of Shell and the Netherlands. This sounds like it's going to be a great day for Australian corporates. Uh, I can see Shell moving their headquarters to Canberra, uh, where Australia will provide sanctuary for companies like Shell to keep polluting at current levels. I mean, I, I wonder if that would solve the problem. Certainly what would not solve Shell's problem is to move its operations from one place to another. So for example, the, the court's really clear that wherever the cuts come from, Shell has to achieve a 45% reduction. So if Shell moved all of its operations to Australia, it would still have to meet this obligation. I have no idea what would happen if it moved its headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> also, let's talk about Exxon and Chevron quickly. As someone who's covered this space, how are you feeling about shareholders kind of holding these two companies to account this week? All three events happened with Exxon's annual shareholder meeting, Chevron's annual shareholder meeting, Shell's court ruling, all happened on Wednesday, May 26, 2021. It's a day that's going to go down in infamy for, 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 these, for these oil companies. Shareholders at Exxon got two seats on the board for activist shareholders that want to force the company to act, to, to be more aggressive on climate and to address the climate, to do anything on the climate. Uh, And over at Chevron, shareholders forced the company to have much more aggressive accounting on how its emissions impact the climate and to try and reduce those emissions. For you, as someone who's covered this energy space forever, how do you feel about a day like this and what does it mean to you? It's a day of reckoning for the oil industry. It's saying uh, you're going to have to shrink your footprint, that The climate crisis is real. It's been accepted. There are costs associated that people across the spectrum are not going to take, so are not going to accept any longer. And that's those impacted by the harms, that's investors, that's policymakers, that's financiers, financiers, so that it's it's a it's a statement from everyone who suffers the consequences of these of the companies continued continuing to operate without any concern for their impact on the climate or unwillingness to respond to their own knowledge about their harms on the climate that that will not be accepted anymore that the costs are too high however one measures the word cost yeah and environmentally socially Definitely. financially it's so fascinating to see how the world is moving to this direction, but there are a few rogue states like Australia who are still accounting for uh, emissions in a way that is only financial and can't can't measure this for long-term strategy, for long-term value creation. And it's so uh, disheartening being in this country to see the leadership of our country not even considering, this, not even blinking, putting in more gas when the rest of the world is getting out rapidly. But that's the thing. It's like, talk about rogue actors. There's no more rogue actor than Exxon. There's almost no more rogue actor than Chevron. There's almost no more rogue actor than Shell. And what each of these events is, is an attempt to say, well, you may want to be rogue, but we're going to hold you to account. So for example, this is basically trying to get at it from, from every angle. So if the regulate you, then the court will hold the company to account. If the courts and the governments will hold the company to account. 
then the shareholders will. If the shareholders won't, then the lenders will. If the lenders won't, then, you know, like, and that's what's happening is that basically, you know, this has been building over decades of organizing and activism and and demands to try and get at this problem at every single way, because you're talking about the world's most powerful and wealthy, or they used to be companies (laughs) and the world's most powerful and wealthy countries, which are many of which if they remain, if they, if they continue to tie themselves to fossil fuels, they won't be either. So the companies are no longer the most powerful companies. When I used to write about, when I wrote my book, the tyranny of oil, the world's most powerful industry and what we must do to stop it in 2008, it was the world's most powerful industry. It's not today. Yeah. It's not the case anymore. And that is going to happen to the governments too. So I guess, Antonia, the other thing that for me kept coming up with all of this really great news overnight is like scope one, two, and three emissions. Do you mind just like telling us what are scope three emissions for listeners that might not be aware? Oh, I hope I can. Uh, So let's see, scope three emissions are the emissions that are burned by the consumers of fossil fuels. So those are the emissions that come when uh, we drive our cars and airplanes fly and companies have tried to say that that's not their responsibility. It's they've used the argument that tobacco companies use, which was, well, we know that our product uh, is harmful and we know that it hurts people. But if you want to drive it and you want to fly it, then that's your fault. Yeah. Uh, I feel and, like and it's an argument um, that the NRA has used a lot as well, right? It's not guns that kill people. It's the people that use the guns. And I think um, fossil fuel companies have definitely gotten away with that too. People just buy the coal. I mean, how are we meant to dictate how they use it? It's not our responsibility. Handball. Exactly. And similarly misled the public about the, con- the what they knew to be the consequences of that consumption, right? So the companies knew the consequences of that consumption decades ago, and that's part of the Shell case that the, that the um, plaintiffs are arguing, is that Shell has known for decades uh, the harms of this, of, of consumption of its product, and helped mislead the public about that and did not act accordingly on that information. And so it also is part of similar to the tobacco argument, is that consumers actually didn't know. It, they were misled about what the harms would be of that consumption. And now the companies with the shell ruling are being told, actually, you have to account for that, uh, for, for that consumption. And also that's what Chevron is saying. It, what its shareholders are saying to the company is we're going to require you to account for that consumption as well. Thank you, Antonio Juhas, fellow Bertha Thank fellow. Thank you, Lynn and Dan. <laughs> Look at us Great hanging out. You. Look, I think that's enough climate news, but there's, I want to leave you with one other thing, Lynn. Uh, you know, our Minister for Emissions Reduction, Angus Taylor. Uh, My favourite. He was asked on 3AW by Neil Mitchell if he drives an electric car. What do you think his answer was? Oh, I mean, even though you'd think it being his job description, he probably walked around the answer and told us all something a little bit depressing. <laughs> it's not that he's riding his bike everywhere, but he's... Driving a guzzler. He made it absolutely clear and he said, I am not driving an electric car, as if he's never going to drive an electric car. He's just waiting for self-driving cars. Maybe that's what he meant, you know, if we give him like the smallest modicum of doubt. (laughs) Yeah, he says, I live in regional New South Wales and drive huge huge distances every year, 60 or 70,000 kilometres, so I need something that can handle hard roads and distances. He drives a Ford Everest, which is a five-cylinder car, which pumps out 225 grams of CO2 equivalent per kilometre. That's a can of Coke of CO2 every kilometre. Angus, oh Angus is putting 70,000 cans of Coke worth of CO2 in the air every year. Is this what the Minister for Emissions Reduction should be doing? 
Do you reckon he's offsetting? Um, <laughs> no, 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 he's not offsetting. He's just put in a gas plant for $600 million where there's no money to be found. Um, also, he did this on the same day. He kind of came out on, on Toronto the same day that Joe Biden was riding around in a brand new Ford F-150 Lightning, Ford's brand new electric Ute, the biggest truck in America, the most popular car in America. Uh, Joe Biden launched it with Ford last week. And <laughs> just, uh, just the optics uh, at the same time, Angus going, no, I'm not going to, there's no way I'm going to drive an electric car. No, fuck that. <laughs> and then Joe Biden going, here is the most masculine electric car you could possibly get. Ta-da. Here I am driving it. And I don't know for any of our listeners who have been to the US, obviously pre-pandemic times, but their cars are way bigger than any of our cars. Uh, you know, like these are huge monsters. So if we can make one of those vehicles electric, pretty sure Angus Taylor might be eating his words very soon for breakfast. That's it for the climate news. We've got two super great interviews for you today. Uh, first of all, we've got Giordano from The Juice Media. If you don't know The Juice Media, here is some of their work. Hello, I'm from the government with an important message as we enter the third decade of the 21st century. Things are going, uh, fine. Overall, the Amazon is fine. Half of Africa is fine. So is the Arctic. Indonesia, Spain, Greece. Even Greenland's on fucking fire. I mean, fine. Scientists have coined a new term for this stage of climate change we're entering. We're fucked. Unlike the previous stage, which climate scientists called listen to us or we might be fucked where fucked is happening and in your lifetime this is thanks to us wasting decades piss fighting around at climate summits with non-binding emission targets whilst handing out subsidies to climate criminals obstructing renewables and generally not giving a shit that rising co2 levels are about to trigger what scientists call feedback loops a feedback loop is the scientific term for when a species uses its own ignorance to screw itself and everything else around it so hard that its own planet tells it to get foe some people are already experiencing we're fucked, such as these Pacific nations facing rising sea levels, who recently begged Australia to please stop burning coal, to which Australia responded, get fucked. Really funny stuff. Always makes me laugh. Juice Media stuff has so much cut through, would you say, Lynn? Yes, and every time I see it on, you know, like scrolling through social media, I always think it's sort of real until I was like, no, 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 no. There's some genius behind this. It is satire because it's just so on point with whatever's topical at that moment in time. Giordano and Juice Media have long been championing climate conversations through the comedy that they make on their channel. Uh, another person who has been championing climate conversations is uh, a legend called Rod Quantock, Australian comedian, been around forever. Uh, I did a panel with him in 2008 and uh, I remember him saying something, well, I'm, I'm throwing out all of my material and just focusing on climate because there's nothing else to talk about. And I thought, oh my God, that's incredible. That's, that's so interesting. And that's almost, that's probably why I started Irrational Fear. Um, so I should let you know that Rod's conversation is a little more depressing. <laughs> so it's very sober about the reality and the facts. And, you know, I guess it comes with working on something for well over a decade, but um, when he wants to crack a joke, still funny, but yeah, this work is not easy and I think we need to just give people at times the space to feel all their emotions. Exactly. So you can feel despair, which is an emotion, with Rod Quantuck. You're listening to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Giordano, welcome to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Awesome to be here. Thanks, Dan. Does that feel too weighty, a weighty title on your shoulders to be part of the greatest moral podcast of our generation? <laughs> it definitely, yes, but I'll do my best to live up to it. Been an absolute fan of your work for 
uh, you know, a decade, uh, ever since the early juice rap news days. Um, it's, it's so it's so thrilling to kind of see you grow and blow up and ultimately become self-sustaining. And uh, I, you know, I don't know how you feel about this word. Very successful, <laughs> but it's a thrill to kind of sit down with you and and talk through your work and talk through your process for what is essentially enlightening the world in a in a funny way. Oh, and I appreciate that. That's very that's very kind. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, first of all, you are a historian. How does your background as a historian inform your comedy? Do you think? I mean, you know, I, whenever people ask me these kind of questions, I don't know how sort of deep to go. And, and sometimes I ask myself these questions as well. I think, you know, the simplest way of, of answering is that uh, studying history really kind of like makes you think what are some of the big picture frameworks that you have to apply? Because whenever you talk about history, it's really important to sort of put, in, put things in context, you know, of the, of, the, of, the, of the year that you're in, the decade you're in, the century, and then ultimately humanity and this whole journey that we're on, you know. And so that's, uh, studying history has really helped me to kind of like juggle all of those perspectives to think about the, the really big timescales and also the very small timescales because that's where it really gets exciting when you can bring those two things together yeah. and then you go click, oh, my God, this is where we're at, oh, my God. And, you know, and a lot comes from that feeling of, uh, oh, wow, we we're living in a really historic time, you know. When people say that we've got a saying that I often invoke history is happening, meaning, you know, history isn't something that that's just in the past. It's something we're living through right now. It's just that we don't see it. We just think, oh, history is something in the past and right now is the present. But, you know, in, in a decade from now, people will look back and see this as, a, as, as history. And so, well, what are we going to do about that? What kind of history do we want to leave for people in the future? So I often, I often don't think of myself as a historian that looks at the past, but a historian that looks at ourselves from the future. Well, that's that's kind of that's exactly kind of what I was thinking about when I was thinking about your work. Your work is so detailed and it's filled with minutiae. And I wonder what will historians think about the work you've created? You know, thirty years time. <laughs> do you ever think about that? Do you feel yeah. like do you feel like you're 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 almost laying breadcrumbs for future historians to kind of understand this time better? I, no, I've never thought of it that way. Um, but, you know, I think future historians will have so many fucking breadcrumbs <laughs> to, you know, it, I just, I really pity future historians because, you know, with the with the arrival of the internet and social media, I mean, like, how do you even keep track of, you know, the archives of the future will be shit, shit shows. Can you, know? you imagine like, a future historian coming across QAnon and trying to understand yeah. what QAnon is? Yeah. No, and then trying to go through HN forums and, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, yeah. Tell me, Giordano, what is shitfuckery? <laughs> shitfuckery is a, is a word that kind of, I don't know, materialized itself. I don't even remember when, uh, because I think I was just trying to search for a word that kind of tried to even get close to the level of corruption, ineptitude, arrogance, fucking betrayal of basic, you know, morality and human rights that this government upholds on a daily uh, basis here in Australia. And um, that word just came to me, you know, as in, you know, sort of a vision. It was like, yeah, that kind of gets pretty close to it. And I don't think when I first used it in one of our honest government ads, I thought it was anything special, but people really kind of latched onto it and went, wow, <laughs> yes, that's what it is, you know? And so I was like, okay, I'll keep using it. And now it's become like a something of a sort of something that people associate with us quite a bit with the honest government ads. But not only you, I have seen it now sprinkled through the zeitgeist a little yeah. bit. Have you seen it leak out outside of the yeah. juice media world? 
Yeah, occasionally I see it pop up. That someone had a sign at the March for Justice in Canberra. Uh, they added uh, Kanti shitfuckery in front of it, which I thought was a very nice addition. Um, kudos to them. Um, but, yeah, every now and then I see it pop up, yeah. And, yeah, some people wear wear the T-shirt, they go through customs or arrive in Australia wearing the Department of Shitfuckery T-shirt, <laughs> which I think, and then they post it on, on Twitter, which I think is quite brave. And, you know, <laughs> so every now and then I see it coming up, which is nice, yeah. Now, I, I find um, this time we're in is really interesting because we're at a pretty crucial time in, in history and human history in that. Um, I think there's enormous humour uh, about how we are not dealing with climate change, um, but it's incredibly sad at the same time. With your historic historian hat on, how do you think future generations will feel about the kind of delay we are having right now on climate action? Yeah, I think it's going to be brutal. Yeah, I think it's really... It's it's going to be, it's going to be horrible. That you know the the way that the weight uh, of his that history is going to put on our generation collectively. And you know I know that you know some people say yes we're you know we're well we're doing something and we're saying and we're speaking up and everything. But but collectively, um, you know the the Gretas of 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 the future are going to be they're all going to be Gretas in the future. <laughs> they're all going to be fucking pissed off with us, and rightly so. I mean that is one of the reasons that I think you know we talk about climate so much is is that feeling of nausea really that comes with oh my god is this really fucking happening are we really doing this like this can't be happening and I already feel angry and so many people feel angry today so I can only imagine how that will be amplified in the future if we don't at this point now uh, take a different path because okay you could say that 10 years ago there was still uh, you know uncertainty um blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. And you can, we, we gave the deniers so many opportunities to really sort of prove the, the point that, you know, there wasn't a need to act urgently. And now, now, now that's no, we've done it. We've wasted those decades. Okay. But now we really have to fucking do it. And we're still not because mainly because of, of the government that we have. I mean, so many sectors of, of Australian society, the market, industry, business people, entrepreneurs are just moving ahead. They're saying, fuck it, let's just do it. And the rest of the world is doing it as well. Like, we are literally becoming the laggards. It's getting to the point where it's, it's not even funny anymore. It's actually pathetic. It's pathetic and it's demoralising, mm. and you know, to hear these government delay tactics at the federal level so blatantly coming out and saying stuff like, you know, it, it go, oh, yeah, well, we, now we acknowledge it's real um, and we know we, we've got to do something about it, but we're going to do it with technology. Oh, and the technology's not there yet, but it will be soon. So just give us another few decades of using fossil fuels. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's that element of it that that is just on its own is already fucking irritating. Yeah. But then there's the other flip side of it is that there are so many opportunities that we could be uh, embracing right now, yeah. which could absolutely secure the future of of Australian manufacturing, jobs, which in turn then spills into society, you know, education, healthcare, all of these sort of things, which could be powered by Australia becoming a, a renewable energy superpower. We Everything is laid out to, in front of us. I've just been reading Ross Gano's book Superpower, which I really recommend, actually. I'm, I'd want to talk about it a bit more in some of the podcasts coming up. And it's just heartbreaking, the opportunities that we are not taking, which could be benefiting Australia so much, especially rural and country Australia, which ironically is where so many of the uh, the Liberal Party, uh, Liberal National Party seems to win a lot of seats. So it, there's, you know, it's it blows your mind. Anyway. Can you remember the first time you took notice of climate change or the lack of climate action as an issue that you were really passionate about, you wanted to communicate through through JUICE? 
Um, well, it was before Juice. I think we started the Juice Media Channel in 2008. I think for me it was when I was an undergrad uni student at GWA and I heard David Suzuki came, came and talk. He spoke at Winthrop Hall and he gave this amazing talk, which was um, quite a catalyst and a turning point. And then I had a lecturer at uni who, was, who introduced me to sort of on the sly gave me books and said, oh, have you read? He was actually South African and he said, you've got some really great writers here, but you know, they don't, they're not very celebrated here. So he gave me a book by John Pilger. He gave me a book, uh, he, and then a couple of others. He gave me The Gaia Theory by James Lovelock. He was a bit of an, sort of a, yeah, a revolutionary kind of lecturer <laughs> that kind of tried to radicalise. He did, you know, he really... And look at you. Of, exactly, yeah, it's all his fault. <laughs> and those are kind of some of the texts that, you know, I read when I was quite young, probably 16, 17, and that kind of really imprinted on me that that, that issue being, being of urgency. I don't know, I've just, yeah, it's just been a... A constant theme, really. And then when we started Juice in 2008 and Rap News in 2009, I think one of the first episodes we had was about climate. So it was really pretty much the the thing that we always spoke about from the very beginning, I think. For you, like out of all the things you've done on climate, do you have one that stands out as the thing that you're like, this is the marquee climate statement that we've done so far? Yeah, we did. We did a video about the fires towards the end of the the the, the deadly, tragic bushfires that we had here in Australia, and um, I feel like that really kind of tapped into where we are at now with with climate, with our government's policy, which is kind of this really interesting and sort of also you know terrifying approach to climate, which has been for years denying and delaying and obfuscating, and then all of a sudden with the bushfires realizing that that's not going to cut it anymore, and then skipping the part where we say okay let's do something about it, totally. and skipping that and going straight to oh well we're going to have to adapt and build resilience, and this is just a reality and we have to accept, and it's like what the fuck? What happened to the, <laughs> the, the step in between that, you motherfuckers? You know, sorry, I get really upset about this. Shit. Uh, no, well, this, this is the podcast to get upset about, please. Yeah. And um, and I feel like that that video really kind of captured that moment quite quite accurately, and it had a great response um, from a lot of people. A lot of climate scientists and climate communicators also took notice, and we had a lot of um, sort of response from them. And one of them was Michael Mann, a climate scientist from the US, who was visiting at the time for a sabbatical. And he and he when he came down to Melbourne, we met up and we. We hung hung out and we really kind of connected and uh, and we spoke a lot about climate shit fuckery and uh, you know and he was really keen to help out with the, he's kind of become like a de facto advisor and he's come back on the podcast a couple of times so that was a real kind of catalyst but we've done so many uh, there are others as well but that was kind of the the one that I feel like. I'm most proud of, let's say, yeah. I thought you were going to say you, he's become kind of a de facto father figure. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think Rational Fear, we did a similar thing. Like we, we made a, like a 12-minute explainer about uh, the constant delay tactics and how the fossil fuels in, engaged in politics in Australia and is basically responsible for getting rid of every single leader who ever wanted to do anything on climate action. <laughs> and that was, I remember sitting on the beach at Bondi, uh, sitting with ash falling on me and just texting people saying, we need to make a video. We need to get this going. Uh, you know, I, uh, texting. You them. made a great video about this. I remember, I can't remember the name, but it had a really good. Um, yeah, Tim Minchin. Um, that's right. Tim Minchin voiced it. Narrated and, it, yeah. And it was, uh, Kara Schlegel wrote it and, um, and we just put, put it together. Mm. And, that was really good. Are you going to do? More collaborations of that sort. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, we'd love to. Sorry, I'm no. going to take over. The uh, of course, now. you know, but the, you know, things like things like that cost money to make. Yeah, you know, yeah. as do you know? Do you know anything about making online content, Jordana? 
<laughs> Shit costs no. money. But yeah, so the, the podcast is kind of the focus of the boat because it's cheap. Uh, so economic wise, if yeah, I've yeah. got an audience with the podcast, then I can start yeah. paying. Then give, I can start paying people give, to do the videos. Give Dan more money, people, because uh, that was really good, and needs to make more of it. If, you, if you're listening, where should they go to support you? <laughs> they know they're listening okay. to this podcast. Now, do, do you have a theory about? comedy and change? Do you have a, a, a an encompassing theory about, you know, if you can make people laugh, you might actually be able to change things? I don't know. I just do it because it feels, I don't know, it comes naturally <laughs> as this way of kind of expressing anger and frustration and comedy is a way of doing it that sort of doesn't leave us uh, in, a, in, a, in a sort of a puddle of inaction and sort of depressive, yeah, just inaction, uh, paralysis. You know, I feel like Laughter takes away fear and, and it emboldens people and, uh, and it makes us feel like oh, laughter is also kind of like it's a really unifying element. Like when we laugh, it's like, oh, we both get that thing, you know, and so it kind of creates a sense of a shared sense of identity of like, yes, this is shit, but we both know, we all know that we're in the situation and that, that can't not be positive for change because once you have that kind of group identity once people understand what shit fuckery is and they bond around concepts or ideas or understandings you would expect that to 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 lead to change but i mean yeah i've never theorized it as such but i would i would say yeah i would i would agree with that yeah do you ever find yourself galvanizing your audience around a particular issue and getting them to do things like do you ever figure do because you, you've got such a powerful audience and you've got such a um polluting audience smart audience and you know it's, it's huge your your footprint online do you ever figure out you know do you ever drive them to actions we have we have occasionally yeah i mean you know we, we it depends on the topic really we did a we did a video for example about the anti-encryption legislation that ended up being voted through by both houses of parliament Surprise, surprise. Um, They're listening to this podcast right now. Yeah, great. <laughs> Good job. There was a, a, um, a Senate inquiry submission process where you could submit comments. Um, and so we, you know, naively thought, hey, let's let's get people to submit comments to this um, uh, Senate inquiry and then maybe they'll take notice of what people are saying. And I think we drove something like seventeen or 18,000 submissions to that. You know, that means one example. And, and you know, all of those submissions are completely fucking ignored, you know. So... <laughs> Um, what you're saying is democracy works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we, we do, we try and we you know we do push, you know, if there is anything that people can do or, you know, um, that we feel like there's something practical, we we sort of encourage that, you know. But I'm never under any illusion that you can change things with a petition or, a, you know, Senate submission. They're all good things and we need to do them, but there's no illusion that that's what, you know, at the end of the day, we've got to vote the shitty government out. Um, that's, uh, you know, um, and, and elect a better one. So I feel like that's really where where it counts is is in the electoral, uh, and at that point, you know, and all along the way there are decisions that we can make, you know, um, to to lead to that outcome. But that's that's the that's the real aim of of the videos that we make. For you, all your videos are incredibly well thought out and very values driven. Do you ever have political parties tapping on the shoulder and go? Hey, Giordano, want to do something about this issue that uh, we would love you to do this to do to help us with this thing? Not really. Um, I think a lot of people think that that's what happens. A lot of people sort of say, "Yeah, I've had a lot of people saying, oh, you paid, you must be paid for by the Greens,' or or sometimes by the Labor Party. For some reason, never by the Liberal Party. The, the Greens can't afford your production <laughs> values. <laughs> but no, I mean, no. I think everyone kind of." 
I feel like the, the parties that uh, that would want us to do stuff feel like you know that uh, we already produce content that yeah. sort of supports the their policies, and there's no need to waste their money on it. Yeah. So Clive Palmer, if you're listening, yeah, exactly. could you please drop Jordana a couple of million dollars to do some pro Galilee Basin content? That, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever heard from people in the corridors of power about how your work may inform the decisions that they're making? No, I know, not at all. I'd love to. I'd love to be a fly on the wall when some MP or senator is watching uh, one of our videos. But um, no, I've, I haven't actually, no. I mean, that's the dream, right? The dream is to yeah. to have someone go, oh, fuck, Juice, yeah. has, done, Juice has done a video on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure Susan Lee, uh, Environment Minister, said that when we did a video about um, the Jabberong trees and we kind of focused on her on her role. I'm very surprised if she hasn't seen that. So I'm just going to have to imagine it. <laughs> Somebody did an FOI request for the Juice Media. They said, can you send us uh, all this? Because there was a whole discussion. I don't know if you remember a little while ago, the government sort of started sending us emails about the use of the government logo. Uh-huh. Uh, well, they called it a logo. I was thought it was called a coat of arms. They just, they're like corporate motherfuckers. It's our logo. And I'm like, what? Okay. Anyway, so they call it a logo and, um, they wrote us a letter saying, just come to our attention that, you know, you're using our logo in your um, videos and we're concerned that these could be mistaken for real government communications, at which I nearly spurted out my coffee because I thought it was hilarious that's, uh, that that's all it takes to confuse uh, real government policies with satire is just the logo. Is that is that all it is? Is that how close we are to sort of the reality here? What does it say about the policies? So there must have been a lot of communication going around that that issue before. So somebody lodged an FOI and uh, it was quite interesting seeing the conversations. That's the closest I've got. And somebody somebody said uh, in response to the video, which caused this email to be sent out to us, they said something like, oh, I, uh, you know, this, is, this must be the latest uh, wave on social media. Uh, and it was someone in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. I can't, can't remember who. Uh, some staffer, and so we put that up on our banner. <laughs> it was like the next, uh, the next wave on social media. I suspect this is the next PMO. wave on social media. Yeah, pretty much. Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet of Australia Government. I mean, if you were doing a comedy festival show, that is a great slogan to put on yeah. your poster, isn't yeah, yeah, yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> I put it up there. It's still there on our Twitter banner. It's uh, yeah. But if you don't know the backstory, you might not know what that is. So that that explains why that's up there. <laughs> now, can you give me a bit of a rundown uh, of your? of your work process, like from ideation to creation to publishing, like what does that look like, you know, in terms of your ways of working? How do you put um, the enormous, what appears to be an enormous amount of content out um, every year? Cocaine is usually the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, we don't put out as much content as a lot of other creators, probably not, not nearly as much as as you put out or others, you know, in, in the scene. So I've kind of, the process that I've gone for is like, I, and I'm, I'm in awe, I mean, like you guys and the Chaser and the Shovel and uh, Friendly Geordies, uh, you know, whatever, the, you know, there's 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 very a lot of very prolific commentators on politics. I've kind of gone, um, you know, we've got a young family and I'm, I'm past the point where I can sort of, just smash it out uh, every week or every second week. So we've kind of gone for like, okay, cool. There's a lot of people commentating on stuff on the fly, like as it comes out. And I kind of see it, even though we don't know each other personally, it's the first time we've met. Um, I've met James from The Shovel uh, once, you know. Um, you know, we, we have a little bit of like a, a camaraderie. We're part of a team that's kind of like working individually. Sometimes, uh, uh, you know, we cross paths, but generally we're kind of like working on a s- similar goal. And I've kind of thought, well, everyone's taking care of the here and now. And like, you know, stuff comes out, people are onto it, you know, straight away. I'm going to focus a little bit more on sort of broader picture 
pick up some issues that get lost along the way or that maybe aren't as time you know sensitive. So we, we put out a, a video every month, sometimes two, but usually one and a podcast, you know. So that's that's the time frame, the longer time frames. The work process is I spend most of that time um, just reading and, and researching and and talking to people, you know, really experts in, in, uh, in, in, in the fields that we want to discuss. Just thinking about you know how, how to approach this topic in a in a way that's really going to cut through. Um, once the video is is written, that's the hardest part, and then that's when the sort of the fun part starts. You know, we we record it. Uh, Lucy is uh, my my partner does the voice for the for the video, so we get into the booth. Uh, that's always fun because we've got to try and do it between snap the, the the Juno's naps and and Lucas play play dates and stuff. So that's a that's a dance another dance. And then we get our actors in, uh, Zoe and Ellen, and that's always a fun time filming. And then I edit it in a couple of days, maybe three, four days, sometimes with the help of a couple of VFX, uh, Brent, who helps out with VFX, and then we put it out. So that's that's the process, really. So the production doesn't take up your living room for too long a time. Like, it, you know, it's, you've kind of worked it out so it doesn't, you know, take, right. up, take up your life. That's right, yeah. It takes up about a day or two of the month or, <laughs> you know, longer if we do a couple of videos. And then, then the rest of the time, this room where we where we were chatting and it becomes like a, a playground, a rumpus room, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, now, what do you think is the power of subverting a, a government ad? What, what do you think is the, the secret sauce there? Why do people, why are people attracted to that? I don't know. It's irreverent. It's, it, it, it usurps the voice of this, of this government. And I feel like, you know, if this government is just, has just done so much to erode public trust and confidence and and it's just always mincing words and beating around the bush and not really coming coming and being honest with people about what it's doing you know the the rhetoric and the the bullshit really is just a it's just a constant charade really trying to conceal the the reality of the policy so i feel like it's the reason it appeals to people to impersonate this particular government probably all shit governments is um, that it's just cathartic. It's like, oh, fuck. Imagine if that's how this government spoke. Yes, yes, there are pieces of shit, but at least they're honest about being pieces <laughs> of shit. I feel like that would remove the most annoying part of of, of the, the government, this, this government that we had. At least then they're honest, you know. There's something, there's something cathartic and kind of therapeutic about that, I think. What I'm hearing from you is a smart staffer would tap Skoma on the shoulder and said, actually, we should put out an honest ad. That way, Juice Media won't have anything to complain about. <laughs> we'll put them out of business. Yeah, 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 totally. Actually, yeah, well, I'm, I'm scripting in a video about e- the uh, electric vehicle mm-hmm. policy at the moment and um, I've got a line in there. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'll use it, but it's something along the lines of, you know, introducing our future fuel strategy. The acronym is FFS. And then the next line is like, no, that's not a joke. That's part of our strategy to put satirists <laughs> out of business. <laughs> Fuck you, the chaser and the shovel and honest government ad shitheads, you know. Um I love the fact that even their acronyms are satirical now. It's like FFS, you know. But yeah, um, no, they, they probably should definitely not not do that. It's very effective. You know, this, the, I hate I hate this, this government and its policies, but they, they, what they do is actually very effective. They're, they're very consistent with their um, with their obfuscation. Now, honest government ads is a format you've been doing for some years now. Can you remember the first one you did and you went, "Aha! Uh-huh, this is." A great format. Yeah. And um, now I'm going to rinse and repeat this. Yeah. <laughs> we used to do a series called Rap News and we finished that in 2015. And after that, I had this decision to, you know, like, well, what do I do? Do I go back to university or do I 
try and keep doing this YouTube thing. You know, we had no Patreon support at the time. So it was like, you know, do I want a job or do I want to be unemployed? That was the basic decision. And I chose the latter and I'm really glad I did that. But the, the immediate challenge that I had was like, well, what am I going to do now? We've done rap news. That series was very successful, but um, it really relied on the collaboration with uh, Hugo, who was the rapper. And so I didn't feel comfortable continuing that. It didn't feel like, you know, that was what was special about that collaboration was the two of us. So although initially I thought maybe we could continue it, um, in, in the end I realized I needed to figure out something else. And uh, I experimented with a couple of ideas. I did a few different things. Why did that fall apart? Was it was it just hard work and just a lot of work? Yeah, look, I, look, um, I think, yeah, I, definitely. It was, I think we got ourselves into a situation where it became not pleasant to do it anymore. You know, I feel <laughs> yes. like, you know, all, I think all projects have, have all, all collaborations have yeah. that um, yeah that uh, window, you know, in which they, they, you have this amazing productivity and, you know, things work and then, and then they don't. And I think for Hugo, especially, he wanted to do a lot of other stuff. He has got, he's an incredibly talented guy. And I mean, you should see him do live shows and freestyles is, it's kind of really impressive. And he wanted to do a lot more of that. And uh, he didn't have enough time because we got ourselves into this situation, which was, uh, we had a contract with RT, Russia Today, right. to produce uh, content. So we were on a, on, a, on a schedule and the Russians were quite, you know, strict about, you know, what, making what sure. What happens we- if you miss a deadline <laughs> with the Russians? Yeah, there was a guy who was always CC'd in our emails called, called Vladimir. And we had a joke that that was Putin, that he was CC'd in all the emails. I forgot, I forgot you had a partnership yeah. with Russia Today. Yeah, that was another fun thing that happened. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a whole, I'm happy to talk about it, but that's a whole other thing. After, after we finished that show, I, I, you know, I was kind of like, well, what am I going to do now? And had a few different ideas that I tried out. And the third video that I made was a, was a, a video, um, was a um, honest government ad. Christopher Pine had, uh, or at least, a, I can't remember who the minister was, but they'd, they'd pressured UNESCO to remove Australia from their sort of the, the areas that had been, um, that are under threat from climate change, including the Barrier Reef. And we got UNESCO to just sort of erase it. And it was kind of like a typical like Band-Aid solution. Let's not fix the reef so that it's not endangered. Let's just pressure UNESCO to not put them on the endangered list of, yes. of places, you know. And it had an amazing response. Like people really loved it. And there was no actor involved. It was just Lucy. I think we did it in a, in a, in a day. You know, I wrote it. Uh, we had a couple of beers, we wrote it, we recorded it. I just pasted a few images together and the format really resonated with people. And initially I thought this was, this was this would be one of the things that we'll do here at the Juice Media. But people loved it so much and I realised pretty quickly that we could do so much. I mean, just the Australian government alone provides us so much more material than we can deal with. <laughs> but then there's other shit governments, you know. I mean, yeah. we're constantly getting emails from people in Brazil, in, in, in Canada, uh, specifically Alberta, in the UK, in, you know, so many places, uh, India, um, that people are saying, like, please, can you make something about, you know, the Ukraine or Hungary? I mean, the list goes on. And I realised, and then we could do ones about past issues. I mean, I would need three or four lifetimes to to do all the videos that I would like. You should see my list of, uh, you know, Please, if list. you're listening, give Giordano <laughs> some more money, go to Juice Media's Patreon. It's not even money, it's time. You know, it's that's the thing. It's, it's, that's the, the limit is uh, is more to time. So it's more like, actually more than money. It's like if you're a talented writer and researcher, you know, and you want to help write stuff, get in touch. That that would help more. If you're, if you're a brain ready to <laughs> yeah. be exploited for yeah. Patreon money. <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't think that's, um, you know, out of the question. I, I'm a very collaborative person and 
we've got a Discord server now and uh, comedians who want to be part of a rational fear ch- chime in with jokes and help 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 write the show and give up ideas and they've got a very thriving conversation about shit fuckery that's happening right. around Australia. That's a real thrill, you know, like to see all these folks in a virtual writer's room participate. And I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, getting extra brains in because th- this stuff is hard to do, you know. It's, it's yeah. very difficult to do and can be very draining. Mm. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Yeah. When you started you were a young man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about RT for a second. Uh, we've both worked for state broadcasters. Uh, I've worked for Al Jazeera in the past. Right. Uh, the broadcaster of Qatar, and you've worked for RT. Um, we've worked for brutal regimes. <laughs> we've worked for brutal regimes. Uh, broadcasters. Yeah. 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 Soft power, they like to call it. Yes. Soft power. <laughs> Soft power of hard power. Yeah. How did you find that experience? And what did you do? You have any feelings about it now? Yeah, look, I mean, it, yeah, I've, I, it was a fascinating experience. It was a really good learning experience. It really forced you know, us to really be organised and, you know, and, you know, even though I kind of sort of talked us down a little bit earlier, I think we did a pretty good job actually of rising to the challenge. It was a pretty complicated show that we did, Rap News. I don't know if any of your listeners remember it. Absolutely incredible early days of Juice Media uh, incredible stories, wrapped. It's in the name, you know, the news wrapped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but incredible guest performances too from people like Julian Assange and yeah. other folks. Yeah, we had Noam Chomsky and a few others, yeah. I, it was a really interesting experience and, you know, we weren't, we didn't go into it um, naively thinking, oh, this is just wonderful. We were quite aware of the implications and, you know, in fact, we didn't sign up, we didn't agree to um, sign up with RT straight away. They approached us very early on. I think it was like 2010 after we did the fir- very first videos about WikiLeaks in 2010, which really helped a lot of people to understand what was happening, who, what WikiLeaks was, who Julian Assange was in the very early days in 2010. And um, so they approached us then and they were like, oh, would you like to do, you know, we'll get you to do a show. We'll give you a show on RT. And we were like, yeah, nah, thanks. Like, you know, we really wanted to build our own independent name and brand and voice. And so we didn't want to be absorbed by this giant that which then would just, we would become an RT show and then they would then maybe spit us out and then it would be like, well, that's gone. You know, we wanted to be a separate thing. So we said, yeah, maybe. And then 2011, they were like a new producer, would, would, you know, from RT would be like, oh, are you, are you still keen? Uh, are you interested in that? Well, maybe. And then eventually in 2013, we said yes. And we, then we negotiated for about a year. It was the most hardcore fucking negotiation that I had with the with these Russians about the terms of the agreement. And we were like really, really strict that it had to work for us because they were like, oh, we want a video every, they wanted like a, you know, a video every two videos a month and we're like, you're insane and we can't do that. And then we're like, okay, video every year. And we're like, we can do 10 videos because we need time off as well. And then we need full editorial independence. Like we don't want anyone telling us what we can and can't say. The only thing that we'll censor is the swear words. And, you know, we had, we had, we even negotiated that we would be able to upload to our YouTube channel first, you know, so wow, that, and then to huge, them afterwards. That's a huge their, deal. Yeah. So like, you know, we really kind of like, and we were quite ready to walk away from it. Like if they said they didn't want that, they weren't okay with it. We were like, well, that's sorry. We're going to leave it then. Um, but they agreed to all these terms. Um, and uh, and I have to say to their credit, like they really respected all of those terms, especially their editorial independence. I think everyone thinks that when you work for RT or possibly Al Jazeera that you're like, you know, there's some person telling you what you can and can't say or removing words. Actually, the funny thing is I've had 
I've had that happen with Western NGOs that have that I've worked with who've really kind of tried to bully us into what we could and couldn't say. And I'm, I've, wow. had, I've said to them, you know, I'm not going to name them, them but I, you know, I actually said to one of them, I was like, you know, this is fascinating. I've worked with RT, you know, Russia's state television and yeah. uh, over two years and we never had anyone telling us what you're telling me now over the phone. <laughs> like- I would argue I've had more editorial, I had more editorial freedom at Al Jazeera than I ever had at the ABC. <laughs> It speaks, yeah, it says something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Look, maybe it doesn't even say anything bad about the ABC, but it definitely blows away a lot of the stereotypes yeah. that we have about some of these, uh, you know, they've got, as you call it, a soft power, let's not kid ourselves. There's a reason that RT was interested in what we we're doing is because we we're putting out a lot of videos that were critical of US imperialism, of US foreign policy, and also domestic policy. That was the focus of rap news. So it definitely served the purpose. But it also helped us because what it did is it allowed us to quit our, our jobs. I mean, I was working part-time at uni and that contract was coming to an end and Hugo was teaching, he was teaching, uh, he was an English teacher. And it allowed us to fulfill our dream, which was to be full-time creators. You know, it gave us a, it gave us that freedom. You know, would you ever do a collab? Now the U.S. government's changed. Would you ever do a collab with the U.S. government? <laughs> Say on the on the Green New Deal or something like that. Oh, you mean with the Biden yeah. government? No, no, definitely not. Yeah, I would. That would be the surest way to destroy all the goodwill and independence <laughs> and the value of the brand that we've created. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, like, you know, sometimes if we're going to support what governments are saying, we did a video about the coronavirus uh, last year, just as the pandemic was kicking off, it was mid-March, and there was so much confusion. I'm sure you remember, it was like, is it, you know, what what do we do? Do we, you know, do we wear masks? Don't we wear masks? Um, you know, do we, do we take it seriously? Don't we? What do we wait? You know, and we put out this video, which um, basically, you know, it helped really governments to put out this. In fact, we put it out before the, the government uh, was able to come up with its own coherent communication strategy. So sometimes we we help governments, you know, uh, in, in that regard. But I'm not. Many gonna, would argue that I'm they're still gonna... trying to come up with a coherent <laughs> communication strategy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, totally. But sorry, I was just going to say with with RT, um, you know, one of the little stories that I think. Uh, maybe some people appreciate it, but so I think so many people, it just kind of went, went under the radar. When we signed up with RT, we kind of really realized we'd never spoken about Russia. We'd never really, you know, it had been mostly about Australian and US politics. And we were like, okay, now that we're working with RT, we have to talk about Russian politics. So we were very conscious that by entering into this agreement, we also had to turn the critical eye and satirical eye towards them. So we created a, a Russian character. At the time, there was a lot of persecution of um uh, um, LGBT people in in Russia probably still is, but at the time it was a real issue in the, that there was a prominent a, issue, prominent issue in the media and persecution also of uh, um, Greenpeace activists up in the Arctic. Um, so those are the some of the issues. Um, and then about two months after we signed this fucking agreement, Putin invaded Crimea, and we we're like, oh, oh fuck you, man! Like seriously, like <laughs> now we can't not talk about this, you know. And I think a lot of people. Who thought? Who think that by signing up with RT, the Juice Media was like compromising itself? Kind of have to look at that episode that we put out because it was, you know, we impersonated Putin and we created this character, um, Russian character, who was an RT reporter, and we totally ripped into Putin and RT and and made and satirized, uh, yeah. you know, Russia's uh, peaceful so-called uh, uh, in inverted commas invasion of Crimea. So yeah, that was a that was some of the the stuff that we did to mitigate our concerns around working with this propaganda arm of yeah. of, of, of of Russian government was to actually okay we'll do this, 
but now we're going to make satire and make fun of you as well. So I feel like it was that was our attempt to balance the two things. And obviously, you felt safe being here in Melbourne, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. far away from from uh, the heavies of Russian the Gulag, security. Yeah. Absolutely, it would have been a different story. And respect to people who you know who do the job that we do in countries where you know we've seen these comments. It's like fuck, man. If someone made that video here in Malaysia or in India you'd be gone, you know, and that's, that's always worth remembering that the, that the freedom that we have in this country to, to do this is a wonderful thing. Yeah. I made a, where the bloody hell are you video, um, on Manus Island and I got, uh, I got deported, deported <laughs> from Manus Island. <laughs> from Manus Island. Yeah, right. Back to Australia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good. It's good that this wasn't the other way around. It wasn't the other way around, which is possible <laughs> uh, in theory, I guess. I mean, there are Australians locked up. On Christmas yep. Island, as we spend, and Britain right can strip your citizenship if if you have a dual one. Yeah. Oh, um, are you are you excited about you know Dutton sending out cease and desist letters and uh, and threatening people with defamation? Oh well, I'm no, I'm just disappointed that I haven't received one. <laughs> have you? <laughs> what's the best What's the best postal address for Dutton's people to send you one? <laughs> no, I haven't sent one either. No, I haven't been sent one either. Who has he sent them to? Uh, just people on Twitter who said remotely defamatory things about Peter Dutton. On Twitter? Yeah. Are you kidding? Wow. Yeah, I know, yeah. What a thin skin. <laughs> um, I remember the first time I made a kind of government ad, a government ad parody, it would have been 2006. It was a Where the Bloody Hell Are You parody. Right. And I got a cease and desist from Gilbert and Tobin, who were Tourism Australia's lawyers, saying that wow. the music that I'd used was exactly the same, um, but it wasn't because I got my music commissioned to be a sound alike. Uh, and so they asked me to pull it down. What idiots. They asked me to pull it down off my website and I said the only um, similarity between my music and your music is the word nah because it was nah, 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 nah. So I said I've done a do version, a whistle version and a crazy frog remix version and I've republished those. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so you know, it's – um. And what happened in the end? Oh, I never heard from them again. But it was, oh, so you didn't cease and desist? No, I uh, I I kept publishing, right, good. <laughs> and the spread it far and wide. But that was, that was the first time that I went. Oh, there's real power in using the tools of propaganda yeah. against the propagandists. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And they're scared. Absolutely, you know, they're yeah. scared enough to send you a letter. Yeah. As a 25 year old kid, that was super exciting to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's also a reminder that we have really shit copyright laws here in Australia. We don't have a, a fair use. Um, I mean, in theory, there, there's a fair use um, exclusion in the Copyright Act, but it's never been tested in court. In court, So I found out about this when we got letters from, it wasn't from the government for this, it was from the um, the writers of the, the, the John Farnham song, The Voice, right? which we got Julian Assange to uh, parody. Uh, so we changed the lyrics and we got you know, we didn't change the music, but we got it, we re-recorded it so it wasn't the actual song and, and we got a, a session, session musician to to sing um, and I just thought this is this is a parody. It's it's obviously modifying it. It's obviously, it fills the definition yeah, of parody. It should should work under satire and parody yeah, for a fair dealing. You yeah. would think so, but um, because of the shitty um, untested fair use clauses here, the publishers were able to sort of put pressure on us and say, well, you know, um, we don't agree. We don't agree that that's a satire. And then, what, well, the early response you can have is like, we'll see you in court. And, uh, and you know, I was like ready to do it. And I was like, is anyone going to take this on? Because this would be a great, uh, um, this would set up a great precedent, you know, for testing the fair use clause in the Copyright Act. Absolutely. And a very public one too. Yeah. Now, if that happened again today, would you go to court? Yeah. I mean, I, 
I think so. I mean, somebody's got to fucking do it. And, you know, as long as you've got a good, as long as you've got good backing and you, you know, because you, you, you can't afford it yourself. You've got to have, it's sure. got to be a. Yeah, surely. I feel like this is a, a Kickstarter yeah. campaign ready to go. A yeah. GoFundMe campaign yeah. ready to go to test this thing caught. It's no, got to, totally. It's yeah. got to exist. And it was high profile because it had Julian Assange who was impersonating John Farnham. We even got John Farnham. He, he even like said, yeah, I'm cool with that. It was, it was the, 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 the publishers, you know, the, the gatekeepers that kind of, um, didn't didn't quite see the, the the humor of it kind of thing. So know? I remember that clip. Did you end up cease and desisting that one? Did you end up taking that one down? Uh, no, we didn't. Uh, but we had to pay them. We had to give them the, all the revenue from the video. So oh, we kind right. of got hijacked by them, you know. And I thought, well, this is sucks, but it it meant that the video stayed up, you know. Uh, that's a. Would you say that's a low price to pay, or I think it's a shit price. Like we shouldn't <laughs> have to pay anything for it. But yeah. we didn't have anyone. You know, I reached out to people and no one was really keen to, to, to take it on. So I was like, well, what are we going to do, you know? Yeah. I'm not going to spend the next five years of my life trying to scrapple up pennies to fight oh a, 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 a copyright I really, uh, thing. Giordano, mm. thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you so much for the smarts and the funnies over over a decade worth of work. Um, it's a real great to, a great privilege to have you on the Greatest Moral Podcast of our generation and to do it inside the inner sanctum of where the magic happens. Inside the bunker and the volcano yeah, uh, yeah. where we live. Undisclosed yeah. location. In, in, uh, in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, look, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for um, thanks for taking the time. It's, uh, it's like I said, we're part of like a, a bit of a network, a bit a of a cabal. family. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> A comedy cabal. Yeah, yeah. So it was really nice and I uh, appreciate it. And I can't believe that it's been 10 years. It's, um, yeah, I always started doing this as, a, as something fun and something that might be, you know, something to get a bit of a, a release and um, always been a bit of a class clown. So I thought it was like, you know, something to sort of keep that that alive. And um, it's, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a privilege to be able to do it, um, you know, and thanks to you also for the work that you do with Irrational Fear. You know, I really, I think we're all, helping in some small way to to unfuck things. So thank you. <laughs> that's a beautiful, I'm gonna, that's, that's now my poster quote, helping to unfuck things. Juice Media. Thanks, G. Well, that was Giordano. What do you think of Giordano? Love it. I love when someone's like awesome on video and then like also in podcast form as well. I feel like I understand how these Juice Media videos get made. <laughs> yeah, Giordano, I had the privilege of, you know, we recorded that inside Giordano's house in his uh, studio where he records every single one of those uh, fake government where the magic ads. happens. Yeah, yeah, and he he's got this he's got this green screen. He rolls out for it, and uh, there's cut. There's like uh, kids have got like crayon drawings all over the walls. It's just amazing. Uh, so it's a very homemade, scrappy operation. He but he has so much reach. Love it. Next up is Rod Contock. He's an absolute legend, but like we said, it's a little depressing, so I understand if you switch off now. <laughs> Rod, first of all, thanks very much for joining us for the greatest moral podcast of our generation. <laughs> very kind of you to invite me. Not just anyone gets to come on. This is this is a podcast where we talk to climate leaders from around the world just for you know half an hour or so about, you know, leading people in climate. I can't think of anyone better to talk to than right now during comedy festival season than yourself. I remember doing a panel with you about satire and politics at the Parramatta Riverside Theatre sometime, I don't know, probably 2008, 2009, um, with, which the great John Pinder organised. And uh, I, I remember you saying one line that really stuck with me ever since, and it was that you have changed 
the entire way you do comedy in that it's all about climate change because there's nothing else to do jokes about. And I thought that would be the great place to start because ever since you said that line, I've been feeling exceedingly guilty about the kind of jokes I'm telling and have progressively made them mostly about climate change. You're a good man, Dan. You're a good man. (laughs) Talk me through that journey. In 2007, I got um, what used to be called a Keating, a uh, Australia Council Fellowship which I had a choice of doing over one year or two years part-time, and I chose the two years. And the idea of that program was that um, in 2008, uh, I was going to be 60 years old. So I thought what I wanted to do was a project that looked at the world from the day I was born until uh, 2008. It wasn't autobiographical in any way. It was just to look at how the world had uh, evolved over that time. And I'm a very literal person, so I did it chronologically. (laughs) And around, uh, I got to 1973, I think it was, the uh, great oil shock. Mm. And um, I realised then that uh, we were extraordinarily vulnerable to problems with oil, particularly running out of it. Um, But I also started to see references to climate change. Um, Mm. So I got really interested in that and I have an extraordinary admiration for science. My hobbies generally are reading about science or mathematics, neither of which I can do but I can read about them. (laughs) And as I read about it and I just read about it and I just read about it, I just saw that it was uh, an extraordinarily overwhelming problem, an existential threat, which is now, you know, within a year or so, I worked out that we're heading for the sixth major extinction. And in 2008, I really thought, well, what you've got to do is tell people the climate's changing and it's a really big problem. So 2008, that was, that seems uh, not, not so long ago. Um, that seems like a time before this kind of reached zeitgeist. You were very much ahead of your time. And I think for talking about this, you know, within the general population, is that your impression of that? Look, and it remains what it was then. It's just another item in the news. Okay. It gets it gets overwhelmed by Prince Harry going back to England, and <laughs> it gets overwhelmed by Buddy Franklin's groin, and it, you know, yes. and, and floods here, but, you know, and very few, um, very few commercial interests in their news coverage mention climate change as a a factor in um, weather uh, disasters. Ninety eight percent of Australia's fauna might have gone extinct, but there was a footballer that pissed in a dog's mouth. That's so exactly we should probably. Right focus on that. <laughs> Look, I, I'm, I'm, I've stopped blaming anybody. I mean, I blame the people who know and deliberately obfuscate. Um, mm. But the other side of it is that it's not just climate change. It's a systemic problem. Um, it's the way we live and it's the way we consume and it's the way that the propaganda of capitalism keeps lulling us into thinking that uh, infinite growth is possible on a finite planet. And so there's no, I, I've given up, uh, we're going we're gonna to have a mass extinction. Um, it's going to become unlivable in parts of Australia in the very near future because nobody's doing anything, even the countries like Germany or, uh, or I don't know, think of another one that might be doing something, are not doing <laughs> enough. 
And mm. because really what you have to do as a policymaker in dealing with climate change is you've got to say to people, you've got to have less. And politics is really based on telling people they can have more. And the first person that says you've got to give up your V8 Holden for a, um, a car that just goes mm, and doesn't go, brum, 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 um, those people are not happy with the idea of transitioning to a, a low-carbon economy. And we now probably have to reduce our economic output by more than 10% a year to reach any sort of feasible goal by 2030. And that's just not going to happen. So I'll look at a way I still do stuff about climate change. Nobody wants to hear it, so I don't get many bookings. Um, <laughs> well, that was my that, that was my question. Like, uh, how did you how did you feel when you made this kind of commitment to do this back in you know oh eight? How did you feel about? Uh, the rest of your comedy career? <laughs> well, look, I've always done stuff that's been, uh, as Andrew Bolt uh, labels me, I've always been a far-left comedian. <laughs> Most people aren't interested in politics. People don't know enough about politics for you to make really sophisticated jokes about it either. Um, mm. I remember I was doing a show many years ago about, uh, well, just about politics in general. But a woman came up to me after the show and she said, I love your shows because it means I don't have to read the newspapers for a year. And <laughs> that's what I do. I mean, it's probably what you do. You read things that the general public don't read. You follow stories and uh, and issues in a way that uh, people who go to work nine to five and then find the cheapest cocktails in central Sydney um, don't have time to do. So I, that's what I did. And because of, you know, personal issues around my family's health, I don't get to get out much anyway. So I just tracked myself down this horrible rabbit hole, which I'd never, I really wish I'd never gone down. But at the beginning, back in 2007, 2008, when I started introducing climate change and the limits to growth into what I was doing, I really did think it was just a matter of telling people. And I chose... I'm not a writer. I mean, I never write a show, so <laughs> I, mm. it's difficult for me to pen a 10,000-word essay about climate change, although I've tried. Uh, I don't know about that, Rod. I've been to plenty of your shows and I can see the amount of writing you do during the shows That's on exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Look, my hard drive, I've got a terabyte of stuff on climate change, everything from uh, a wonderful program that uh, David Attenborough did in 2006 on climate change, telling us exactly what I've been telling you now, never shown in Australia and nobody paid any attention in the countries where it was shown. And then I saw all these scientists who were writing popular articles in magazines and newspapers and I thought, well, mm. that territory is pretty much covered and it doesn't seem to make any difference. And I, one of the things I thought at the time is you can't, you can't change people's minds in five minutes mm. um, and you can't even change their minds in an hour. No. You really you really need to get them co to commit to understanding what you're talking about and very few people do that. I, look, I know, look, I've made a few climate change friends over the years who share my despair, uh, but we've stopped talking about it to each other. 
So it's got to that level. I mean, I still need to make a living and if I'm going to go and talk to people, I'll talk about climate change and peak oil and, you know, the fact that 96% of all animals on the planet now today are either humans or the animals they eat. It's just we have so overshot the limits of the planet um, and there's just no way back. So, um, look, it's really distressing. I had a time there about six or seven years ago when I thought, well, look, this is the problem. All the people I talk to and, you know, you don't buy tickets to to a show that (laughs) you don't want to know about. Um, So the people who come are, you know, down the path. But what I saw was a lot of great, good, wonderful people who were basically giving all their spare time and a lot of their personal uh, wealth to trying to transition to a carbon-neutral economy. And I knew it wasn't going to happen and I knew they were wasting their time. So I I tried to redirect their energies, if you like, not into changing the global economy, not into changing the Australian economy, not even um, changing the Victorian economy, but to find ways to uh, live sustainably within small groups, which is that's the future. That's what's going to happen. And if you can't live sustainably within a small group, if you remain dependent on the system that's crumbling, you're going to die. It's just you're going mm. to die. I mean, next pandemic, I had a job at Melbourne University for uh, two years back in 16 and 17, I think, as a research fellow. And I did a lot of fellowing and I did a lot of researching. <laughs> and... Um, I sort of got to the point where I didn't want to know anymore. Um, I knew too much. But I did uh, produce, it's not finished, it'll never get finished because I'm not a writer, but I did produce a a long-form document which included uh, predictions for the period 2018 to 2030. And one of the things I predicted in that back in 2017 was a global pandemic, viral pandemic in uh, 2023. No way. Well, if you do the reading, <laughs> you don't have to be, a, I'm not a genius. I'm just somebody who reads a lot and has particularly, uh, my admiration for the scientific method is overwhelming. But it's like everything that humans do, it has a, it has a dark side. With that prediction, what what were the steps that led you to that prediction? What were the things that you concluded that, you know, 2023 roughly would be when a global pandemic would happen? Well, this was, I can't remember when SARS was, but there had been a number of um, diseases which had passed rapidly, mainly because of aeroplane travel, that had passed rapidly into a global environment. And um, so, I, you know, I read about that as one of the problems we faced and uh, the literature I read just said that this is going to happen. It's going to happen very quickly and Mm. there will come a strain uh, which is COVID uh, and there'll be worse than COVID to come because viruses are very clever. Um, Mm. So it just, look, I apologise for being three years out um, but for anybody who, who did the work that I did, that was the logical conclusion of uh, mm. uh, where we were heading in terms of these things. And then other things like, you know, the uh, the bushfires of last year, I 
sort of left that a bit open in terms of what it, when it would happen, but I knew that was going to happen within a few years as well because that's, mm. you know, the, 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 the great thing about science is that you stand on the, on the shoulders of giants and mm. each little increment uh, that you make uh, to their understanding can then be you can project in ways that you can't project with the financial market for instance. I mean you can take a gamble on saying that Amazon's a stock to buy. But in terms of climate change, it's a very simple equation. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere causes the temperature to rise and the more you put in, the higher the temperature will go, which changes the whole weather patterns of uh, the globe. And it also much more slowly changes the patterns of oceans. So you might remember the group called 350.org. Did you ever yeah, get yeah? okay. Of course, yeah, 350.org started by Bill McKinnon. That's right. And um, it was 350 was the maximum amount of CO2 in the atmosphere uh, before we hit a tipping point. Yeah, 350 parts per million. Um, yeah. Right? Now, it turns out that that was only a sort of nice round number to call something, you know, if you wanted to <laughs> run an organisation. I mean, you know, 312.5.org just doesn't cut it. <laughs> so it was an approximation and, and they were wrong to think 350 parts per million wasn't a problem, um, but they had mm. to start somewhere. And... Um, now, I didn't look, I've stopped looking, but we're, we're probably close to 420 parts per million at the moment of yep. a historic, or certainly in terms of human evolution, a historic baseline of around 280 parts per million. So we're so far over the scale. And you can see, you know, with the floods that uh, you in Sydney and people in Queensland have uh, experienced and then the cyclone on the other side and now there are uh, bushfire alerts in South Australia today. Um, it's just gone crazy. The weather's just gone crazy. And if you live near the coast, don't. I mean, that, that's all <laughs> I can say. But, you know, those things of rising sea level, which come with thermal expansion of the oceans and melting of ice caps and so on, um, those now are pushing salt water up into rivers that never had salt in them before. And they're pushing salt into uh, uh, arable land that didn't have salt on it before. And, it, mm. you know, it's no mistake, you know, no accident that the Romans, when they conquered somebody, salted the land. Um, to make sure that uh, no other people could use that land to build an opposition to the uh, the Roman Empire. So it's mm. everything. It's just everything. So you know, I, look, uh, look. I have days when I uh, I think I shouldn't talk to people about this because what's the point of people knowing? Is it better to just eat, drink, and be merry? But it's something that I think. Certainly, uh, I, I remember an article by Andrew Bolt. I don't read him anymore because he gives me an ulcer. <laughs> but he was talking about Tim Flannery talking about sea level rise of a metre by 2100. And the line he had in it was, uh, 2100, long after we'll be dead. <laughs> and it was that lack of any empathy for generations yet to come and, mm. and you saw it, and again, uh, I did read a bit of Bolt during the pandemic, and you would have seen it in America, people saying, well, the only people who die are old people. And Andrew yeah. Bolt actually had a statistic that said um, the average uh, length of stay of an elderly person in, in a uh, care home is nine months. So really what's nine months left less on your life 
when you're oh, 80 that is or 90. Terrible. So let's keep the economy oh, going, and these are the these people will have to pay the price for the younger people. You know, if you stand in the way of a man and his profits, he'll crush you. And that's what's happened with the climate debate. This is a really strange kind of uh, attitude to have. It's only when you realise that conservatives, uh, the only thing they're conserving is their money. Yes. Like that's the only thing. That's yes, the it's, only a, it's thing a very strange word to use for them. But, <laughs> see, these are the people who are buying bunkers and fortresses in New Zealand. I mean, these are people who think they can buy their way out of any problem. This kind of – does this speak to your – your idea of living within small groups as opposed to on your own or in the big systems? Well, you can't, oh, look, I mean, there are people who literally do live on their own um, and I'm sure there's, you know, tens of thousands of them around the world who've chosen that path. And there have been, I did look at the sort of utopian sort of 60, 70 ideas of communes, but they never last because people are people. And that, that's the <laughs> overarching problem. The, if, if I die, or when I die, I shouldn't say if, <laughs> when I die, <laughs> I, I want to have put in the Oxford Dictionary of uh, quotes, Rod Quantock said, the problem with people is they're only human. And that's the problem <laughs> with people. You know, we're, we're malleable, we're, um, we've got wiring that crackles and breaks and, uh, you know, we just are. There, there's no other species on the planet that has such a diversity of mood, temperament and, uh, and uh, lust and greed and the seven deadly sins. You just never see a greedy lion. Um, you see a lion <laughs> that's had enough to eat and they go to sleep. So we are the problem. And it's been a battle, you know, it's a philosophical battle that goes back to the big, very beginnings of uh, humans, the, the, the battle to understand where we sit in all of this and what our obligations are to each other and, and to the surrounds. And the one book I always recommend to people is a book by a guy named Daniel Quinn who wrote a book called Ishmael. And Ishmael, I won't bother you too much with it, but Ishmael is, ends up being a sort of Socratic, a Socratic dialogue between a, a captive gorilla and a writer who's sort of wondering why the world's fucked and should he try and fix it or what should he do. And it's a dialogue about humans' place in nature. And Quinn draws a line between two ways of living with the uh, advent of agriculture. Basically, prior to that, people did live in small groups. They didn't fight much because everybody knew everybody else and the, the little group had a way of dealing with people that, uh, uh, like Aboriginal people, laugh at um, in their sort of traditional uh, way of living. They'd laugh at people who did um, things they disagreed with. They'd humiliate right. them with laughter. Um, right. People had ways of dealing with it. But what agriculture did, um, first of all, it formalised the ownership of land and prior to that nobody owned anything. They shared it uh, with everything else. And then it uh, developed systems to protect their ownership because um, an acre of uh, um, land given over to crops can support a lot more people than 10 square miles of 
the equivalent amount of crops, population started to aggregate and accumulate and grow. And then, of course, you needed hierarchies because there were people in that community that you never saw but could come around and kill you tomorrow. Um, <laughs> so there were systems of law and systems of politics and hierarchy and, uh, oh. and of course, religion came into it. So um, there just was that time when we went from being part of nature to trying to control nature and that's what we've done ever since you know I lived next door to people when I was growing up who used to <laughs> who used to vacuum their lawn uh, <laughs> they'd go <laughs> they'd go out and rather than rake the leaves they'd actually vacuum them up and well, right you know, right. And, with a you know, sun, I mean, with a blower yeah and I right. mean air conditioning's another way of how we've tried to control nature I mean everything we do is to keep nature at bay um, it's a th- it's a place that frightens and terrifies us and but it's also a place to exploit and yep. we've done that uh, you know to the ultimate peril of the planet it's really sad and look at I, I at different times, I try to float above it all and try to be that wise fool that looks down on you all and goes, ho, 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 look at you silly little ants. Uh, <laughs> but you can't. You're in it. Uh, you're part of it. And uh, so, as I said, I, I don't put any much more time into uh, studying these things because I'm, I'm only learning what I already know and I'm not being arrogant with this, but I think uh, the one thing I bring to what I do always is some sort of um, intellectual honesty, I suppose. And I've always tried, um, yeah, there, there came a time in my comedy career and I've very, very, I've not done, not really since the 60s have I done comedy that's autobiographical. Uh, mm. I'm not interested in my relationships as a public event. I'm not interested in my family <laughs> as a public event. I'm not interested in lots of things as a public event, but I'm interested in public events as something to talk about. And I finally got to the point where I realised that comedy is a tool um, and that it is a privilege um, to be able to get up in front of <laughs> now six people, but what used to be five <laughs> or six hundred people, and talk to them um, using comedy as a, as a sort of sugar coating about things that are really important. When you were doing climate comedy, what was what made you feel the best? Like when you were doing the comedy, what what kind of gave you a sense of either progress or change or achievement. Can you remember a moment? Um, no, not a moment. I, as I said, I, I talked to the converted, so in one way, you know, <laughs> it, it was a safe space for me to do this stuff. But right. I used to do corporate stuff. I used to do corporate stuff before they woke up to me. Um, and I did, uh, of all things, I did a, a conference for uh, plumbing suppliers. Right. So I talked to them about water and climate change. I talked to them about urban fabric and climate change. I talked to them about plastics and climate change. I talked to them about and, look, I think I'm a reasonably good comedian and I did make them laugh, but I did make them think and a few of them did come up to me afterwards and talk to me about it. Oh, great. um, So, you know, I mean, look, it would have floated out of their minds by now, I'd imagine, but in that moment you did get the feeling that you'd done something positive and good. Did you ever Did you ever think when you started doing climate comedy that you could make a difference? 
Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, 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 uh, my first thought with it all is that, as I said, you can't change people's mind in five minutes. You can't change people's minds if they're told that the uh, the extraordinary flooding uh, that you've had up there in the last few weeks is contributed to by a large degree, and I would think within a week or two, scientists will tell us exactly what proportion of that rain was generated by climate change. Uh, it just it doesn't add up for people until it, even if it hits their own door. I mean, I've seen people in America standing in the rubble of, you know, Katrina or Hurricane Harvey or those things saying, I don't believe in climate change. And they're the same sort of people who say, I don't believe in the coronavirus. It's just too difficult. So, uh, uh, and so I thought the only way to do it is in some sort of long form way. And making it personal, uh, you know, there's nothing like a live performance. Uh, television mm. never particularly in terms of comedy, never carries that extraordinary feeling that an audience and you as a performer get from being in the same room. But, yeah, all I do now, unfortunately, is I scare people. <laughs> I, I, gave a, I used to get bookings in high schools um, to talk about yeah, it. Yeah. And I did do a primary school, which was great fun, but I did a high school, oh, it'd be 10 or 12 years ago now, Mm. And a mother contacted me afterwards and she said to me, how dare you tell my son we're all going to die? And I thought at one level, well, somebody's got to tell him, but at the other <laughs> level, what right have I got? And that, that's, I've tried to find people. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is. Is it, is it people like this that discourage you from doing it or is it, is it something else? No, what discourages me is that, even if the whole world turned around today, it's over. It just it doesn't matter how much you cut carbon emissions with 400 and say 20 parts per million today, and it goes up. You know, it seems insignificant, uh, but it goes up two or three parts per million every year, and it just rockets along. You know, and and um, and but there's a lag. There's a lag between the a molecule of uh, carbon dioxide entering the atmosphere and it, its uh, capacity to fully um, express the energy it's captured. So and that's quite a lag. It, it's um, And getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is short of some technological miracle, which I can assure you will never appear. It's going to take thousands of years to get the climate back to what it was and then many, many thousands of years for life to evolve uh, in that new stable climate. Uh, and by then there's probably going to be another ice age. So, you know, we had one shot at what's called the Holocene, the Goldilocks era of life on this planet. It's the only uh, geological uh, period in four and a half billion years that has had a stable climate at this global average temperature of 13.7 degrees Celsius in the history of the planet. And it just turns out that it's ideal for humans. We are the size we are. We are the shape we are. Our metabolism works the way it does because of this um, climate that we have. And the the way we eat, the way we live, the, you know, everything is, is based on that uh, underlying uh, stable temperature. And, you know, each degree it goes up, 
you know, you said something earlier about how many species have gone extinct. It's, you know, it's 100 a day or whatever. Um, mm. People don't know because we still don't know everything that there is in nature and a lot of it we'll never know because it's already gone and we didn't notice it was there in the first place. So so I've, I've had this sort of moral ethical dilemma as to what right do I actually have to tell people that this is going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. I'm, um, and I've tried, tried really, really hard to find what you can do about it and I came down to small groups of people living away from other groups of people, particularly people with guns, and uh, ex- uh, existing sustainably. 13 years ago, Rod, you inspired me to do more comedy about climate change. Sorry, and, uh, Dan. Now, and now uh, I'm inspired to uh, go join a commune. So thank you. No, that's a pleasure. But uh, look, uh, I mean, clearly there are things that need to keep uh, kept talking about. But Do you think your pessimism stands from, you know, what you've learned plus where you are in your life. No, no, no. Because so, I, because yeah, I, I feel like I feel like I've, without without sounding disrespectful, I've got a few <laughs> more. I've got a few. I've got a little, bit more of a longer runway ahead of me than you do. So I have to remain hopeful. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I understand that. No, I, it's not. I'm not pessimistic in in the sense that you mean it, um, and I'm not being in any way superior to anybody else when I say this. I'm just being realistic. And my one regret, because <laughs> I have an incredible curiosity, um, my one regret is I won't be around to see what happens. Um, mm. I mean, at one level I don't want to be, but at the other level, and I don't know whether it's an I told you so attitude, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, what we're looking at is um, in geological terms we're looking at, something that's never happened before, that one species has managed to change the entire nature of the planet in a very short space of time. I mean, literally, what, uh, 1750, the beginning of the Industrial Age and the burning of coal. From that time on, um, we have managed to destroy most of what's valuable. Um, You know, Mm. the person I feel sorry for is David Attenborough because, you know, how could you do a show about nature when there's no nature left? But mm. I mean, and you can see in him something that what I have is that hope. And I hate the word hope because hoping for something stupid. But anyway, that hope that you know something you say may trigger a switch that that makes mm. changes. But yeah, you know, so I've, I've put. I've put my life and soul into this for the last more than 15 years, I suppose, now. I'm not disappointed because I didn't have a lot of faith in humanity to begin with. <laughs> um, and that's, I suppose, the problem. And that, that came out of part of that research I did for the uh, Australia Council Fellowship. Um, I was born in 1948. 1948 was the year that Israel uh, became a nation at the expense of the Palestinians. Um, that is still a festering wound 73 years later or 72 years later or whatever it is, 73 years later. Uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was declared that year and that's made not a jot of difference. Velcro was invented in 1948 and that has revolutionised the shoe industry. But there, there was uh, that period just immediately after the Second World War was in a way the most devastated but most optimistic uh, 
generation. My mother lost her husband in the war and married my father after the war. Uh, that was when things like um, uh, welfare came in uh, in England, nationalisation of uh, industries, a genuine attempt to reward the ordinary people who'd suffered through that war uh, with a share of the good life that was coming, you know, and the average manager of a business made seven times more than the uh, average worker in that same business. Today they make, I think it's more than 70 times what an average mm. worker earns. Yeah. Um, uh, real wages haven't gone up for 30, 40 years or something, um, and yet the wealth of the wealthy has so concentrated that now I think three people now own half of the wealth of the world. And that's not mm. what my parents invested their lives in achieving. And the 60s was that their children rebelled against consumerism and they rebelled against, obviously, the Vietnam War, but they had ideals which have been crushed out of people now. They're, and it's been done at an industrial scale. The, the use of propaganda, marketing, PR, psychology, you know, there's not a toy in the world today that isn't designed by psychologists. You know, everything is, is um, aimed at your behaviour. Everything you think and do is harvested in some way. Uh, by somebody who could then just press particular buttons in you that you will respond to. And mm. I think last time I read, they only need eight data points to work out your sex, your race, your income level, your age, and God knows what else. And you know, you know, I mean, you know, like everybody else, if you don't turn up, you turn off your pop-up blocker, um, you suddenly start to get things that seem very interesting to you because... Uh, they're deliberately there because they're interesting to you. We recommend this. People who like this also like that. And uh, anyway, yeah. yeah, there was a there was a case of um, that story in in the US where a, a local Target sent a teenage girl uh, a whole catalogue on baby stuff, <gasps> and her parents found out because the Target knew that she was pregnant before she but, did. Oh. <laughs> Oh, yeah, okay, all right. Uh, yeah, so how do you, you know, when when the, uh, when the uh, traditional media is so corrupted, uh, when politicians are corrupted, uh, when the internet only takes you where um, they know you want Your to go as lie. opposed to where yeah. you want to go, um, everybody's a prisoner now. They know too much about us and, you know, that. But Freud, I blame Freud. It's all Freud's fault. <laughs> there you go. I've said enough. <laughs> Roll Rod, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate the healthy dose of realism that you've given us <laughs> on right. the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Generally, a, a more positive forum, generally a more hopeful podcast, but not this one. No. It, it, you know, you've restored the balance thank of you. where people's heads <laughs> should good. be. Let me ask you, as someone who uh, I look up to and has been a mentor of mine, and uh, what do you think I should do with my comedy skill set or with what I have to offer? Do, do you think I should even bother continuing or is there oh, something else I should be doing? Well, look, I guess it comes down to the fact that you need to, you need to think you're doing something. And so 
I mean, I, I you know, without uh, getting too mutually backslappy, I really admired you because of the path that you've taken with your comedy. Yeah. So, uh, you, look, you, uh, I, I haven't given up in the sense that I, I don't continue to try and talk to people and, and make people see what's going on. But as I said, you know, you can now, wherever you live, go to the Bureau of Meteorology or the CSIRO and they'll tell you how much rainfall you're going to get in 20 years' time. They'll tell you how um, how much the average temperature where you live uh, will go up in 20 years' time. Uh, it'll tell you... I used to think Tasmania was the place to go, but mm. Tasmania's future isn't great, so I've, uh, I recommend it. What was the name of it? It's the southernmost town on the uh, southern island of New Zealand, but I told too many people about it and the real estate <laughs> prices have gone up, so I won't be going there. Look, there are places, but where you are isn't the place. You know, if you're in a high-rise <laughs> building that depends on air conditioning and mechanical ventilation and a lift, you're not going to stay there. You can't live there. You can't expect, uh, you know, the pizza delivery boy to climb 18 flights of stairs to give you your pizza because you can't be bothered going out to buy the ingredients Um, or everything. Just everything will be different to what it is today. And, you know, to get people to understand that is, you know, it's an important first step. And that's why I did the thing, the Tim Tam. I really tried to make it personal. And that's what, you know, I don't want to tell you what you should do or how to do it, but it's, it's, it's about making it personal. It's about taking it away from, you know, polar bears will become extinct, the ice caps will melt. It's not personal to people. Everybody's got a DVD of David Attenborough standing next to a polar bear, and that's all they'll ever know about polar bears. <clears throat> and they'll always have the DVD if they if they ever want to see a polar bear. I forget who said it, but like I think uh, it was it was a science a climate scientist, a science communicator, or activist who said people are going to start really caring when the footpaths start melting. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And the town you're thinking of, I think that's uh, Invercargill. That's that right? it. In, yeah, it is Invercargill. <laughs> it's, a, it's got the best name in New Zealand, Invercargill. Yes, Invercargill. I know. It's all lovely. It's and it's a beautiful name, little town right? and very, very remote. Um, <laughs> I keep telling people in small country towns that if they've got an Anzac memorial with a cannon in it, clean it up and point it back down the road towards Melbourne because when people start <laughs> fleeing, that's the last resort. Anyway. And of, and of course, we saw do? that we we saw that during the pandemic. As as the <laughs> pandemic hit the cities, everyone hit the countryside. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and toilet paper. That was a, <laughs> make your own toilet paper. Yeah. And oh yeah, there's an idea. I've got to. I've never worked out a way of monetizing my concerns, but that may be it. <laughs> You could do a masterclass on how to make toilet <laughs> paper and sell that online. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't use poison ivy if you get stuck. Um, anyway. <laughs> Rod, thank you so much for joining us on uh, the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Um, it's always, uh, it's always a, even though you may, uh, you may think you're being a realist, for me it was absolute joy. Good on you. Bless you, Dan. Bye. 
And that's it for the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Big thank you to the Bertha Foundation, Road Mics, all of our Patreon supporters, and also please do come along to our Bega shows and our Newcastle show and later on our Melbourne and Sydney shows. Um, June 5 in Newcastle, June 13 in Bega, June 24 in Sydney and July 10 and 11 in Melbourne. Of course, inshallah. I mean, who knows what Melbourne's going to be like uh, after Well, we don't after want to welcome news. you into our state potentially. <laughs> It's a table table Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, this is, we are recording this on Thursday, a Thursday morning. Do we know how long? Before the press conference. Is it going to be lockdown? What's your bet? Oh, having come from like, what was it, 112 days of lockdown last year, five days is nothing. So <laughs> that's what it takes. Let's bring five days versus 100. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Let us know how you feel about this podcast on iTunes with a five-star review or, or four-star, you know, whatever. Thanks a lot. Bye, everyone. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.